Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The announcer at that time, a man named Chuck Parkinson, who was a Hollywood announcer, uh, uh, quite a famous announcer, had that very deep voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Strait. And the spotlights hit the gate, and there's no George Strait there. And you can't see anything but those spotlights. And we're looking in the dark trying to figure out where George Strait is. He had backed that horse all the way up the east ramp of the of the Astrodome, and he had it coming at full gallop and it came through the gates and he set that horse down on his foot. Welcome to the first of three special episodes of the Legends of the Old West podcast. In these episodes, we'll take you behind the scenes of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, the largest entertainment event of its kind in the world. It's a three-week, Texas-sized extravaganza held every spring in Houston. This year, from February 25th to March 17th, millions of people will flock to the grounds around NRG Park, also home to the Houston Texans, to take in the livestock shows, champion rodeo events, and all-star concerts featuring some of the biggest performers in the world. In these three episodes, you'll learn about the history of the event and its unique mission, You'll hear from one of the world's top rodeo athletes, and you'll hear exclusive interviews with musicians. And you'll hear more stories like the one that started this episode. That voice belongs to Leroy Schaefer, whom everyone just calls Schaefe, the former chief operating officer of the rodeo. He worked for the event for more than 40 years, and he has more stories than you can possibly imagine. That was just a little taste of the tale of George Strait's legendary first performance at Rodeo Houston. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear the full story. I promise you, it's incredible. But now, let's jump into the interviews with the top executives of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. In the first, you'll hear from current president and CEO, Joel Cowley. 
He'll outline the history and evolution of the event, explain its agricultural and educational mission, and give some hints as to what might be coming in the future. And then we'll hear from the rodeo's current chairman of the board, Jim Winnie, who, like Leroy Schaefer, has been a part of the event for decades. Jim's passion is the core of volunteers, 34,000 of them to be exact. As you'll hear, it takes a small city of people to make it all work. So let's get to it. Here's President and CEO, Joel Cowley. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially at this time of year when I'm getting crushed by allergies. In Arizona, we have these wonderful trees called Palo Verde trees. They have yellow flowers that look nice, but produce yellow pollen that makes me cough and sneeze and makes my eyes so itchy I almost can't stand it. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show began in 1932 to, to promote cattle production in the Gulf Coast region. Uh, throughout the 1920s, cattle production began to, to really grow here uh, in this region. This is great cattle country. You wouldn't know it now because uh, when you come to Houston now, of course, uh, lots of houses and strip malls and roads and whatnot, but it is fantastic cattle country. And it had tremendous potential back at that time. And then there was a new breed of cattle out at that time, too, that had just been developed called the Brahma. And it was developed in this region for subtropical environments. Uh, it was a breed that was uh, parasite and heat resistant and, and did good on forage. Um, and the folks in Fort Worth at the uh, Southwestern Exposition didn't think they maybe had the right number of chromosomes to be showing in the same show ring as the Herefords and the Shorthorns and the Angus. And so they wanted a way to promote the Brahmin breed as well. So it was really a group of uh, uh, seven businessmen and, and uh, cattlemen that decided to host the first Houston Fat Stock Show and Livestock Exposition, as we uh, were originally known. Uh, that first show was held in downtown Houston. And for those who are familiar with Houston, where the Hobby Center now stands, that is where the Democratic Convention Hall stood. The Democratic Convention Hall was built for the 1928 Democratic National Convention. And it was a great first venue for the Houston Fat Stock Show because it was centrally located, the population accessible by rail so that livestock could, could show up. And cars weren't that, that uh, common say, at that sure, time not, as well. Not quite, a, not quite the freeway system 
that modern Houstonians enjoy. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about that building, the Democratic Convention Hall, which is also called Sam Houston Hall, was that uh, it was built in 64 days. Apparently, Houston, in its true can-do fashion, said, we're going to host the Democratic National Convention. They didn't have a venue. So they built that building in 64 days for that 1928 convention. But that first show was held in that facility. Uh, it was not much more than a cattle show. Again, it featured Brahmin cattle. And uh, they drew 2,000 attendees, and they lost $2,800. But they felt that it did a good job of of really elevating uh, cattle production and the potential of cattle production in the region. And talked a little bit about the the region in itself, but it, it surprises some people to find that as late as the 1950s, Harris County, Texas, was still the number one cow-calf county in the state of Texas. There were more cow-calf pairs here than any other county. As late as the 70s, it was still in the top 10. And that's not the way it is anymore, certainly. But at that time, there was tremendous potential. And there's no doubt that the cattle industry had a big role in the early development of Houston. So what's kind of the early benchmark then after after it started as a as a livestock show obviously a cattle show what was the earliest benchmark where it expanded into more of the entertainment what we know today so they actually held the show much in the same manner from 1932 through 1936 and even though it was struggling financially they felt again it was doing a good job of promoting cattle production and promoting agriculture Uh, unfortunately after the 1936 show or i guess i should say fortunately after the 1936 show Fire damaged the Sam Houston Hall or the Democratic Convention Hall, and probably because it was built in 64 days. Um, But that actually gave the organizers uh, basically two years off to plan the 1938 show. And instead of just doing what they had done before, they thought, you know, to promote something, we need to draw people and also to be more financially viable. And so while they were waiting for Sam Houston Coliseum to be built in that very same spot, uh, they came up with a lot of ideas on how to improve upon the event when they moved into this wonderful new facility. And they came up with things that we know today. The downtown parade was added. Uh, They added the horse show. They added the carnival and the midway. They added the souvenir program, which we still do today. And probably the the best thing they did that year is they added formal volunteer committees to sell tickets and exhibits. And uh, that early start with uh, these formal volunteer committees has grown into the over 34,000 volunteers that we know today. Yeah, I was going to say, so a lot of that stuff traces back to almost the very beginning. It was kind of the uh, revitalized or reorganized, reconstituted 1938 show. Yeah. That really, where we started seeing the volunteers and the committees and the carnival, the midway, a lot of the things. And I didn't mention the rodeo, the first organized rodeo in 1938 as well in this beautiful new 9,000-seat air-conditioned Coliseum, which was the first of its kind in the Southwest. So it provided a, a great venue to host the show. I will tell you that there was an article in the Houston Chronicle the day after the 1938 show that uh, commented that, boy, that's a beautiful new facility, but it's not large enough for the Houston Fat Stock Show and Livestock Exposition. So we we have a history going back that early of outgrowing facilities as soon as they are completed. I was about to say, so the second it was done right after the first show, they're like, nope, we got to we, we need a new it. And it's amazing how quickly, as we talk along, how quickly we filled future buildings and uh, needed more space. So 1938 was the was the pivotal year. 
1942 was also another pivotal year. Can you tell us why that was? Yeah, so in 1942, we featured our first star entertainer, Gene Autry. And no question, a lot of your listeners will know who Gene Autry is or was, but he was uh, incredible because... uh, He's the only person in history to earn all five stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So they give stars for radio, recording, live theater, motion picture, and television. He has all five. So he was an incredible star at the time. But not only was he an incredible star that had a lot of power to draw people, he was also a rodeo producer and a rodeo stock contractor. And he gave the show a really good deal on the rodeo stock. And he was the main headliner. And he sold out all of his performances. And that's when the idea came about to pair a rodeo with a star entertainer. Uh, We have a lot of our old bound financials here, and I was looking in our chief financial officer's office here a couple of years ago, and I compared 1941 to 1942. 1942, gross revenue of the Houston Fat Stock Show and Livestock Exhibition jumped 40%, and much of that can be tied to Gene Autry. So we were on to really a formula for success for the future. And and they continued to do better financially, uh, such that in 1957, we awarded our first scholarship in the amount of $2,000 to a a gentleman here, Ben Dickerson, from Bel Air, Texas, just down the road from from, uh, where the show is held. And uh, he was our very first scholarship recipient. And do you have any rough numbers as to how many have been handed out in the interim? It's uh, right out, I think, 17,000 scholarships have been handed out uh, since that time. Uh, But he was a great first scholarship recipient, went on to get his PhD and become a professor at Baylor, and was just, they couldn't have picked a better first scholarship recipient. They set the bar pretty high with that first one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the show did enough financially by that time that they awarded that scholarship, and it's grown from there. But as I mentioned, following the 1938 show, we were struggling for space over all this time, and and there were show supporters who actually purchased land up where the Northwest Mall is, and they were considering donating that so the show could build its own facility. Uh, we actually own land not far from where we are now on uh, South Main that we were thinking about building. And that's where the idea of the Harris County Dome Stadium, or when the idea of the Harris County Dome Stadium came about, Judge Roy Hoffines, who had been the county judge in Harris County in the late 30s and early 40s, had the idea to build this wonderful dome stadium uh, in which uh, we could play baseball and actually dug the hole and realized he didn't have enough money. And so he approached his old friends at Harris County and they knew that the, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo at that time, our name changed in 1961, um, was looking for a, a different venue. And so through a partnership, the rodeo and the entertainment moved into the Astrodome here on our present site. And the show actually built and paid for the Astro Hall, which was on the south side of the dome. And that's where the livestock show was. And that building was not only important because it it provided a venue for our livestock show, but it also really kind of put Houston on the map as a convention destination because we didn't have a George R. Brown at that time. And so auto shows and and, uh, boat shows and the offshore technology conference and things like that could be held in that building. And the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo donated it to the citizens of Harris County as well. So next up, you, you mentioned it already, uh, the name change came in 1961. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was really driven by two primary factors. One, the rodeo was was 
receiving great acclaim, and so they wanted to get rodeo in the name. But that was also the point in time where consumers started to become concerned about the amount of fat in their diet. And so fat stock show was not very appealing. And so the name to get rodeo in and take fat out was changed to Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Ah, that makes perfect sense. All right, we're, we're getting healthier eating every year, so I can understand why, why they might want to change it up. Let's focus maybe a little bit on the rodeo side of things for the moment. How, obviously, that grew once they added that component to it. How, how has the evolution of that been from your perspective from those early days to now? So the, the rodeo was added in 1938, and uh, today uh, it is the, the richest uh, rodeo outside of the National Finals Rodeo. Uh, total purse, about $2.1 million. And uh, it's, it's unique because it's a tournament-style format, and there are a few rodeos that are like that, but it runs over 20 total days. It's 19 days for our Super Series, and then we have one day, which is a Super Shootout, which is actually a team competition where different uh, – Teams representing different rodeos in North America compete against each other. So there is a Team Rodeo Houston, which, as you might imagine, receives great support from the audience, uh, especially when they go up against San Antonio or Fort Worth uh, in particular. But uh, it's a tournament-style format, and it's created that way so that the fans can hopefully, hopefully follow athletes as they progress through the tournament. So they compete in three performances. The top four money earners in each of those performances advance to a semifinal. Uh, and then ultimately, hopefully, they get to the final, the top 10 out of the 40 who originally started get to the final. And on that final Saturday, we award the winner of each event $50,000 in addition to the money they've already won up to that point. And so it's not uncommon uh, for these rodeo athletes to earn $60,000 if they become our champion in each one of these events. How have you seen the audience participation grow? Clearly, it has. The, the event expands every year. It's got. We've just walked through some of the history of how popular it's gone, but it must be going in leaps and bounds, especially from those in those early few decades. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's become a, a truly a community event, and uh, it's it's an event that really to me draws the fourth largest city in America together as a true community for three weeks every year. And I don't know how you place a value on that, but. Houston uh, takes great pride in this event. It's, it really is a point of civic pride for the people who uh, support the rodeo year in and year out. The primary reason that people come is the entertainer. We know that from surveys. Um, and when we mix it up and we, we have non-country nights, we know we draw people uh, that are younger, probably more diverse, uh, that most likely haven't been to our event before. And though they come for the rodeo, we also know from our surveys, once they get here, they love all of those rodeo events. They walk around the grounds. They like the livestock show. They like the horse show. They like the shopping and the food and the carnival and the wine garden and everything that we offer. And hopefully we've, we've made lifelong fans out of them as a result of that experience. Yeah, it, it, the, the name is, is accurate, the name of the event, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, but it also doesn't even encompass everything that is here. You just mentioned the wine garden that's here, <laughs> the shopping. I'm sitting here looking at a massive map of the, of, the, of the sprawl, as I said earlier. It is everything. This is incredible. You know, it's funny. On the wine show, uh, which started uh, just a little bit before I got here in 2005, uh, I get questions on that all the time. Wine and rodeo, that makes no sense. And I have to explain to him, no, it makes perfect sense. Our core mission is agriculture. 
Viticulture is agriculture. And then I usually follow it up with something like, you know, next to a dry-aged prime New York strip steak, a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon is my favorite agricultural product. So it makes perfect sense. And the timing of it was great uh, with, uh, with this burgeoning Texas wine industry that we have now at this time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and can you can you talk about other? I mean, Texas also has a has been has a growing distillation side of things. The beer market has always been good down here. Do you bring in any of those kinds of things? The breweries and distilleries and those kinds of things. Those are things that we're looking at. Uh, our wine competition committee is has. Uh, really propose that we do maybe a craft beer competition and have a beer garden in addition to the wine garden. And so don't be surprised in the future if we should see that. But really, it it ties to agriculture. And I go out and I I speak to civic and corporate groups groups about the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo and go through the history of the show and how it started and the early agricultural roots. And then at the end, I, I try and come back and reinforce that this agricultural mission is still very meaningful. And I had to start doing that because about two years ago, I went and spoke to the Houston uh, office-wide meeting of Accenture. So there were about 800 consultants in the room. I went through the history and, and the contributions of the show, and I had a young man come up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, that's, that's very fascinating, but why do you dedicate all this space to the livestock show? Wouldn't you make more money? if you put commercial exhibits in there or attractions. And I thought, yeah, he's right, we would, but that wouldn't be true to our agricultural roots. And so I added some slides to my presentation. And those slides basically convey that uh, our agricultural mission I believe, is even more relevant today than it was in 1932 when we were trying to promote uh, a growing cattle industry. And the reason for that is that, unfortunately, Americans take agriculture for granted. Uh, We spend less than 10% of our disposable income on food. That's the lowest percentage of any nation on the planet. And because food is so affordable and so available to the average American, certainly not all Americans, but the average American, we just take for granted it's always going to be affordable and available. And that may not be the case. There are roughly 7.4 billion people on the planet today. Most estimates have it at 9.5 billion by the year 2050. That means we're going to have to produce more food with most likely less land. And we're not doing a great job of feeding the entire planet right now. And so we really promote agriculture and and fulfill our mission, I would say, in three primary ways. One, we put on the world's largest livestock show, uh, which also involves about 19,000 4-H and FFA entries from young people. Young people already have an interest in agriculture. We need young people involved in agriculture because the average age of the U.S. farmers increased from 50 years of age to 58 years of age in the last 30 years. So we need young people who are interested in agriculture to pursue uh, that vocation. Um, we also award scholarships. And when we started our scholarship program in 1957, it was required that you obtain an agricultural degree. That is no longer the case. As long as these young people go to a Texas college or university, they can major in anything that they want to major in. Roughly 20% major in agriculture uh, of all of our scholarship recipients, but there's about 40% that major in science. And whether they realize it or not, they may become involved in agriculture because to feed more people with the same or less amount of land, it's going to take technology. And so they may become involved in agriculture. And then the final way we really promote agriculture is educating the general public on the importance of agriculture because they are the current and future consumers that are either going to accept or reject the technology it's going to take to feed our planet 
a wholesome and sustainable manner. They're also the current and future voters who will vote for the legislators who will hopefully uh, support agriculture with the legislation that they pass. So building off of the education side of things, you just you just talked a little bit about it with the scholarships. Continue to tell us a little bit more about the education side of things. It's probably, again, something that people just on the surface might overlook when, it, when they think about this event. So tell me about that. So on grounds, we take great pride in uh, creating really engaging, interactive, fun educational exhibits that, that really speak to the importance of agriculture and agricultural production. Uh, we started this back in the mid-90s with AgVenture, is what we called it at the time. And though I wasn't here at that time, I'm told that the idea was to create this for young people, but the folks who created it soon realized their parents hadn't seen these things as well. And so most Houstonians are probably three or four generations removed from any agrarian background. So if we can expose them to agriculture and the importance of agriculture in their daily lives in a fun and interactive way, uh, hopefully they leave here with a greater appreciation for agriculture, they're proponents of agriculture. When legislation comes about um, regarding agriculture and agricultural production, hopefully they're supportive of that and, and they let their legislators know that they're supportive of that. Uh, it's, it's really fun to see young people in particular looking through these exhibits where they can watch a, a live calf or a lamb uh, be born or a chicken hatch or a baby pig be born or learn about honeybees or soil or a number of other agricultural products uh, because really it involves science. Uh, and so if, if their teachers uh, come with them, and we host over 60,000 young people every year on school tours, they can hopefully build that into the curriculum. And we actually have a committee now called Agriculture Education that's going to take a, a teach certified curriculum into these schools to teach about agriculture, but do so on the basis of science. And so we take our, our mission of promoting agriculture and educating the general public very, very seriously. Again, as I just referenced earlier, there's a big map on the wall of the entire setup. Right next to that map is a much larger map of the barbecue contest. And I would be very <laughs> remiss if I did not finally get to, I've been waiting patiently to ask you about the barbecue contest. Uh, they take over, this contest takes over a huge parking lot and I don't even I don't know how many tents for vendors there would be. Or competitors. I, I believe it's over 300 different teams that come and compete at, our, at the World Championship Barbecue, and I love it because it's it celebrates the consumption side of agriculture, uh, with these teams coming in and, and competing for best ribs or best chicken or best brick, brisket, and it really is a, a an incredible social event to have people come here. It started back in 1974 with just a handful of folks, and it's grown into what it is today, and so we start off uh, before the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo begins, we have the barbecue competition for three days. And only in Texas can you throw a barbecue and over 200,000 people show up. And so as we, as we wrap up, just in general, what does the future hold for the event? You know, as you look at our future, we, we have to overcome our greatest constraint, which is space. Still. <laughs> uh, still space. Uh, it, it was that way when that brand new building was built downtown in 1938. It remains uh, our biggest challenge. And on an average day, we're, we're fine. We can, we can host people. But when we have a huge day, like a weekend, it, it does get crowded. There's no question. And so accommodating a larger crowd. And if you look at huge Houston 
and the population projections for Houston over the next decade or two decades, if we just maintain our market share, the percentage of people interested in the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, we need more space. And part of the answer to that is the Astrodome, which is uh, really set vacant for the, since 2008. And the county commissioners have approved a plan uh, to basically turn it into exhibit space, which, uh, you know, over 300,000 square feet, which will certainly help us as we expand into that. Um, it's also no secret that the, the rodeo owns 102 acres across from 610, which is the old Astroworld property. And in the near term, we're using that uh, for parking long term, we're looking at ways we might be able to utilize that to enhance our event uh, so that we can host more people, comfortably host more people, expose them to agriculture, entertain them, uh, and make this an even greater community event that it does even more for youth and education uh, from the standpoint of our scholarships and, and our grants and uh, what we're paying out to our junior exhibitors. That was Rodeo President and CEO Joel Cowley. And now we'll hear from the man at the top of the volunteer side of the organization, the chairman of the board, Jim Winnie. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I was in the junior bull riding at the uh, rodeo at Cypress, Texas, where I grew up on Friday night and decided I was going to try my hand as a professional bull rider. And uh, my parents kind of thought, oh, he'll get bucked off and it'll be over with. And so I won $24, won the bull riding, and after that I was kind of hooked. I was about to say, so is it fair to say the $24 changed your life? Changed my life. Made me decide I was going to be a bull rider. And so how did you— As a teenager. <laughs> of course. <laughs> How did your uh, your first experience with the Houston Rodeo come about? Uh, I started on the Cass Scramble uh, Committee probably close to 40 years ago. And, um, you know, my father was a veterinarian. I grew up in Cypress, Texas, so it was fairly rural. So I've been around horses and cattle all my life. And so uh, uh, I'd like the Cass Scramble. And so I, that's where I started as a committeeman on Cass Scramble. And we know volunteering is one of your passions. That's going to be the big topic we want to talk about today in this segment of the, of the, of the episode. How has the Houston Livestock Rodeo been able to achieve such success? How much of that is due to this massive pool of volunteers that you have here? Well, it is a volunteer organization. I mean, it's pure and simple. And uh, if you look at the history of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, it was actually called the Houston Fat Stock Show when it started. And it started with some gentlemen that wanted to promote the cattle industry in Texas. And uh, it was volunteers, and so volunteers have driven the growth of this show for the last 87 years. And it's, uh, there's nothing stronger than the heart of a volunteer. I mean, their passion for our mission statement, the camaraderie, the sense of community uh, continues to prosper every day here at the show. What do you think draws them to this? What, what inspires them to want to be a part of this? You know, for the kids. I mean, if you ask most of the volunteers, why do you do it? They do it for the kids. I think... You know, to have a sense of community, it brings people together that share a passion for something they truly care about. And they care about the youth of Texas. They care about agriculture. They care about our city. They care about our state. And uh, they're very passionate about that. Roughly how many volunteers does it take to run this event? 
Right now we have over 34,000. Yeah, that's a number I'd heard. I wanted to make sure the audience heard it too. Roughly 34,000. And let's talk a little bit about the diversity of the talent pool that you have with the volunteers. What kinds of walks of life do they come from? What kind of backgrounds do they have? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, Obviously, there's 109 committees. And there's something for everyone, depending on your skill set. We have uh, committees that are experts in moving heavy equipment. So maybe you're in the heavy industry, heavy equipment industry, or you're in the construction industry. So you may gravitate to one of those committees where you can use your skill set. If you're in the food and beverage industry, you may be on the wine committee, or you may be on one of the service committees or the hospitality committees. Uh, If you like horses, you may be on the horse show committees. Uh, if you're in sales, you may be in one of the sales committees. So there is a committee which you can use your skill set on at the rodeo. And you'll gravitate towards those committees that have a culture uh, that adapts to your personality and your skill set. With 109 committees, there almost has to be something for everyone. There has to be. How many volunteers do you think have an agricultural background that come in? You know, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, if, if you have an agriculture background, you may be on the all breeds, you may be on the horse show. Uh, it just would kind of depend on, uh, you may be on the ag mechanics committee if you're, uh, if you're an ag. So it, it would just kind of depend on which committee you want to be on. You may be in an agriculture background and have a business background and you may end up you know in the leadership position on one of the committees because your business background sure sure it doesn't absolutely have to be a like a, a one-to-one kind of crossover no, you know i mean my background my, you know i've been in agriculture but i've also been uh, in the oil and gas business and so i have a variety of skill sets and just kind of depends on where you want to use your talents with that amount though that's such a diverse background and such a huge number of volunteers how do they mold how have they molded the houston rodeo into what we think of it as today a common mission statement which is promote agriculture and support the youth of texas they're very very passionate about our educational programs and if you ask a lot of the volunteers you know why why do you do it so we do it for the kids and i can't tell you how many parents come up to me and and, and thank me and how grateful they are for what the show does for you know, whether they, they were going to college or whether they showed their animals here, just what a big difference it makes in their life. And you see it on their faces. You see it in the parents' faces, and it's very rewarding. It's a direct, it's a direct connection. I mean, it's not, you're not just writing a check and, and sending it in. You actually see the impact of your effort on the faces of the people that you're impacting. I think there's something like 61 or 62,000 school kids that come through here on our tours and and maybe the first time they've had any exposure to agriculture if they come from an urban area wow and so there's a lot of programs here at the show unless you came out here and really spent a lot of time on the grounds not necessarily in the stadium which everybody kind of knows the rodeo in the stadium but you could spend a few days out here on the grounds looking at all our programs and it would probably take you two or three days to go through all of them I can imagine all the different setups here. How many do you get to interact with any of the any of the children as you walk through there? Can you actually see the kind of the awe inspiring looks on their faces as you go through? Yeah, almost a stage of wonderment, like they've never you know they've never seen that before. And there's so much for the kids to see. You know, whether it's the rabbit exhibit, it's the the birthing center, it's breed row, it's it's the agriculture exhibits, it's fun on the farm. Uh, there's a lot in terms of our educational programs that are displayed here at the show on the grounds. So as we, as we stick with the themes of youth and education, how do youth and education play a role in inspiring people to volunteer, knowing that they're helping with those sides of things? They're helping to make an impact on education. 
Well, I, I would say there are several things. Uh, one is we have 2,307 students enrolled in 84 colleges with 212 majors. Okay. And we've committed, you know, right at $475 million to youth and education programs. Um, but the other thing I will tell you in terms of, of seeing the impact and why people show up, we, we had one of our sponsors uh, was at, out at the show, and he came up to me and he said, you know, these kids look you in the eye, they shake your hand, they're articulate, they're grateful, they're smart. And he said, you know, it really gives me a lot of hope for the next generation. And when you, and when you see that and people can actually feel the impact of what we're doing on our community and the youth of Texas, I mean, it's real. And it's on their faces, and and the parents and uh, the kids that show up and benefit from our programs couldn't be more grateful. And that's a very rewarding. It makes you. It's that real good feeling that you know I'm actually making a difference. And uh, I tell our volunteers all the time: don't for one minute discount the impact that your efforts have on our community and the youth of Texas. And you know I'm a native Texan. I'm proud to be a native Texan. My native Houston, and so I love my state. I love my city. And uh, I love the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo and the educational programs. And, and I like the fact that I can actually see the benefit of our programs and, and, and the joy it brings to them and, and further's education. You know, we're, this is the next generation of, of leadership. I mean, we're basically helping educate the next you know, generation of leaders in our state and in our country. And uh, yeah, I'm proud to be a part of that. Is there a special bond that brings people together to want to volunteer for Rodeo Houston? You know, that is a very good question, and I have tried as chairman for a year and a half to describe that bond. There is a bond between these volunteers that I have a hard time finding words to describe it. Uh, I would say it's, it's a strong sense of community where people come together for something they believe in and that makes a difference in people's lives, and they're very proud to be a part of it. And I've had volunteers say, you know, I'm not so sure I don't get more out of it by showing up with the friendships and, and the difference it makes in people's lives and how rewarding it is to them. And I think that also helps strengthen the bond because it's a common goal and a common cause that they, they show up for. And I think we show up for each other as much as we, we do for the youth. You know, if someone needs something, if you're in need, there's a volunteer that's around here that's going to help. And you've been involved for more than 40 years now. What are your, some of your personal favorite memories as a volunteer? We knock, I start on calf scrambling. Calf scramble committee is responsible for what we call roll call. So when the, the kids are selected to participate in the calf scramble event, there's an orientation. So they bring them into one of the rooms here in the center, and they have to get their, their shirt on, their number. And one of the things they do is teach them how to put a halter on the calf. Well, that's a rope halter. It doesn't have a buckle. It's, you have to know how to do that because if you put it on upside down or wrong, it'll come off. So there's an orientation. So they're always doing some kind of a prank in there that would get catch you off guard i've been sprayed with silly string they paraded animals through there just anything to kind of throw you off and the kids really enjoyed kind of the kind of lightening up that mood in there a little bit as they were getting orientated to to go over to the uh to the calf scramble so i had a lot of fun uh in the calf scramble room early days with those guys and so uh, they always made it fun thank you to jim and joel for the mountain of information about this one-of-a-kind event As you heard, it really does take a small army of dedicated people to bring the rodeo to life. And thank you all for listening to the first episode of our three-part series about the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, 
here on the Legends of the Old West podcast. We'll be back next week with two great guests. First up will be Katherine Schultz, Managing Director of Sports and Events Presentations, which basically means she's in charge of the rodeo. And then, five-time world champion steer wrestler, Luke Branquino. And now, as promised, we'll finish up with Mr. Leroy Schaefer and the story of George Strait's legendary 1983 performance at Rodeo Houston. Buckle up. You're going to love it. Well, in, in 1983, quite often, uh, and we did for many years before and after that, we had two entertainers on each performance. And uh, that particular year, we did have a Saturday matinee and a Saturday evening uh, billed with Eddie Rabbit and Roseanne Cash. And our, our security detail that worked with the entertainers uh, called in early in the morning before sound check uh, for the matinee performance and said, we got a real problem. Uh, Eddie Rabbit is, is ill. Can you send one of the doctors over? And we did have a cadre of doctors on call at that time. Most of them were volunteers with the rodeo. And we sent one of them over, and uh, he called back in a few minutes and said, he's not going to be able to perform. I can't even understand him. He cannot talk. Uh, he's totally lost his voice. He's got uh, a cold and complications. Uh, we went on that matinee, and I may need to point out that Eddie Rabbit was at his peak at that point, and Roseanne Cash had the number one hit in America, uh, and we went on with just Roseanne Cash for that performance, but we felt we had to come up with a replacement entertainer for that evening. We were very fortunate in that there was an association of entertainment managers that were having their convention in Houston. And we sent a call over to the Astroworld Hotel uh, and said we need help. And within probably 30 or 40 minutes, in the middle of that matinee rodeo performance, we had 10 or 15 managers and agents in our offices. And they were on the phone and they were calling. And, uh, well, we got this. No, he can't get here. No, we got this one's no. We had a young young manager uh, with one of the Nashville agencies uh, they came forward and said, I have an entertainer. He's not the level you guys are looking for at this point. Uh, but his name is George Strait. He's not touring right now. He's over at his ranch in Seguin. If we can get a hold of him, see if we can get him over here. Our general manager at the time, Dick Weekly, said, uh, never heard of him. <laughs> uh, and I asked Mr. Weekly, he has the number one country song in America right now, Marina Del Rey. Uh, he said, oh, yeah, I, I've heard that. Uh, well, we decided that's the best we can do. Let's see if we can get them over here. We started um, calling. Uh, he, he, um, Tony Conway, the agent uh, manager, got in touch with George Strait's wife. She said, well, he's out on the ranch right now on a horse with the dogs. I'll see if I can get a hold of him. Tony said, see if you can get a hold of the band. And she said, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Well, it was 1 o'clock when they finally got back to us. And she said, we're getting everybody rounded up. But what time is the show, and do we have time to drive there? One of our uh, executive committee members, uh, Louis Pierce, uh, who's now deceased, but he was the owner, president of Texas Ironworks and Walkershaw Pierce Industries, had a private Learjet. And he said, let me see if I can get my pilot. Uh, he said, no, wait a minute. 
He's, I've loaned my plane to Daryl Royal. He's on a recruiting uh, trip uh, with the University of Texas. He said, but let me see if I can patch through to him, talk to him. They talked to him, and um, the pilot said, I can land in Seguin. I can land Daryl Royal in Austin. I can be in Seguin by 5 p.m. If they can meet me there, uh, he said, I think we can pull this off. We had them in the air, but we knew that by the time we landed them, got them over here, that the rodeo would already have started. So these guys came out without a sound check. Uh, they, they, While they were en route, we got in touch uh, with the uh, – the manager and agent for um, Roseanne Cash and said, because of what's going on here now, uh, we need for you to go ahead and take the first position because it'll give us more time for us to get George Strait and his band in here, get them ready. And uh, her personal manager, who happened to be her husband, a man named Rodney Crowell, uh, came over and met with us and he said, no, I'm not going to allow that. Uh, he said, you have to understand, my wife is the bigger star here. Uh, so we we uh, we need for him to go on first. And we said, okay, you know, we'll do that. Um, they came in, they were not shaved. Uh, you know, they had three days worth of growth, which would be common today, but it wasn't in 1983. They were wearing baseball gimme hats. Uh, we borrowed hats from our officers that night. We had all of our officers come over, and they were trying on hats. Uh, we got them on stage. We were just in the infancy of our big screen uh, broadcast at that time. Uh, uh, we had this big projection screen system called Ida 4 Light Valve Projection. And we we were showing George Strait on the live on that big screen, and his charisma just came through, and he absolutely stole that audience. I mean, it was a phenomenal performance. Um, in the and then we had a at that time we had this Jeep that had chase lights all over it, and when we had two entertainers, when the first entertainer was over, this Jeep would come out and get them. And it would just immediately take them back to the dressing room. Then the second entertainer would perform. And after that, this Jeep would come back out. It would have the first entertainer and the second entertainer would get in there with it. And then they would drive around the arena so the crowd could see them. Uh, Roseanne did a great performance, but it just was a, it was a dead performance after that George Strait thing. And in the middle of that performance, the, the, agent for Roseanne Cash came up to our production stand and said, uh, Shafe, I really hate to tell you this. He said, but Roseanne's husband doesn't want Mr. Strait to be in the car when it comes back out. He's a replacement star. His wife is a bigger star. So he, he needs to come out some other way. So we went down and started talking about this. And Tony Conway said, well, let him ride a horse. And Mr. Weekly said, do we have a horse? And, and, and I looked down, I said, Mr. Weekly, the, the rodeo producer's horse, Mike Servey's horse, is still down there at Saddle. Um, and he said, but that's a very spirited horse. He said, I don't know. And I'll never forget, Tony Conway said, Mr. Weekly, George Strait is a cowboy. And Mr. Weekly looked at him and said, yeah, everybody is a cowboy. And he said, no, seriously, he really is a cowboy. And so Mr. Weekly said, well, get him down there, get him on the horse, let him ride around behind the chutes. Let's see if he can really do this. Um, Roseanne Cash's performance is ending. Um, I saw the agent coming back up the ladder to the production stand. He said, Shay, he doesn't want them in the arena at the same time. 
He said, so she needs to do her ride off, and then George Strait needs to come in. So I went back and told our general manager, and I went down and found Tony Conway, and we got with George Strait. He said, I understand, I understand. So Roseanne Cash did her ride around. The announcer at that time, a man named Chuck Parkinson, who was a Hollywood announcer, uh, a quite a famous announcer, had that very deep voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Strait. And the spotlights hit the gate, and... Th- there's no George Strait there, and you can't see anything but those spotlights. And we're looking in the dark, trying to figure out where George Strait is. He had backed that horse all the way up the east ramp of the of the Astrodome, and he had it coming at full gallop. And it came through the gates, and he set that horse down on its butt and reared it up in a Gene Autry type pose and waved his hat. The crowd went bananas. We couldn't get him out of the arena. The crowd wouldn't let him leave. I think he did six or seven ride arounds. Um, and that was the start of the George Strait legend at the Houston Livestock Show in Rome. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.